it just Mike Tim- Mike Timone? Mike Mike Tamano. Mike Tamano. Hey, this is Carrot Top. You listen to Mike Tamoni and Tamano. Mike Tamano. Oh, I'm Mike Tamano. Yeah, I'm Mike Tamano. Oh, say so, hey, it's Carrot Top, and you listen to Mike Tamano. You dumb fuckers, turn it up. The Mike Tamano happening. So this is Christmas, and what have we done? Another year over and a new variant has just begun. Here's hoping you had a beautiful Christmas. COVID, or the threat of COVID, threw a bit of a monkey wrench into one family gathering this year. Too much to process. The whole thing is a mess, from the information being disseminated to the strife, anxiety, and divisiveness that it's causing friends and families. And I don't blame either side of it. Many people have been touched by this. I've lost friends to this disease, uh, this virus. And I can understand how some people are wired to live in complete fear. I mean, it changes every week. And I can also understand how others believe the politicization of it all has left them a bit skeptical and reluctant to continue following the course of action set forth. So I don't I don't hate anybody. I don't divide myself amongst friends and family and cohorts and people that I know, whether they're on the side that says, you know, follow the science, and I'm putting quotation marks around science, people who believe that Dr. Fauci has all the answers, and I can also understand how people say, this is a crock of shit. This is never going to end. That there's a little bit of overreach happening, and that nothing is consistent. So I can I can see both sides. Whatever side I'm on is irrelevant. One thing I know for sure is we're on a strange path collectively. A lot of anger, a lot of hatred and judgment occurring among us. Happy New Year. Well, we can hope. But chewing away at optimism is the resignation that we're in a new place globally and socially, and we're probably still way far into the woods, far away from any clearing of thought and unity. I mean, we'll either get it together or we won't. We've got things to do, so let's do them. I do want to thank the guests that visited with me since this podcast began in July, and I encourage you, if you're new to the program, Go back into the archives and enjoy our chats. We had a, an amazing singer-songwriter, Donnie V, on. Uh, comedian Jackie Martling. I mean, what a career. What a wild ride. Comedy genius, Tom Leopold. What's it like to write for Seinfeld in Cheers? We had Buddy Rich's daughter, Kathy Rich, on. And Greg Potter, who now fronts the Buddy Rich Orchestra. Ska punk king, Donatus Ramanoskis of the band Dead Freddy was with us. I had the honor to interview jazz legend Ron Carter. You can't help but learn from these masters. Martial arts champion Sensei Steve Gross was on with us. Power popster Phil Angotti. Makeup whiz Dennis Preston. Heavy metal legend Lothar Keller. What a renaissance man. I mean, listen to these interviews. They're just incredible. We had an amazing actor, Frank Ferranti, on with us. The premiere groucho marx student and an actor the motor city madman ted nugent what a 
what a fireball of an interview that was. Songwriter and producer Mick Fabus, who uh, really shined a light on the career of a musician. Radio legends Ed Till and Scott Davidson joined us. Wonderful actress Dee Wallace, rock and roller Dave Bella. I mean, we've had some great interviews, so go through and uh, listen to the past 25. And of course, Gary Williams, an astounding drummer and music educator who passed away eight weeks after our conversation with him. And as I stated, you know, Gary was an amazing ambassador for drumming and a shining light in the drummer community. Still, I'm reeling over his death. I was really looking forward to growing our friendship. And since his passing, I did have the opportunity to uh, communicate with both his wife and daughter about how much uh, his work means and how wonderful it was to have the chance to talk to him. And I know his legacy is going to continue to impact musicians through his books and his videos and uh, the people who have had the pleasure of knowing him. So we're going to wrap up a year that was creatively stable for me. I've still got plenty of projects that were on last year's to-do list that are still waiting to uh, see the light of day, but I'm chipping away and we're going to take a trip into the vaults. Lately, I've been thinking, man, we could definitely use George Carlin in our lives today. For me, George Carlin's career was one of constant growth, reflection. He began as, you know, a tie-wearing stand-up, doing character voices and little vignettes, kind of like Lenny Bruce, but very, uh, very clean, you know? He was doing Wonderful Wino and the hippy-dippy weatherman and stuff like that. And then he morphed into like a hippie counterculture spokesperson ended up as a ranting voice of anger in the pop culture wilderness and his work really touched my life from childhood through adulthood and i still revisit it quite often if i ever want to get kick-started creatively i just open up one of his uh, books napalm and silly putty when will jesus bring the pork chops and brain droppings they're just random comedic pieces that uh, will really get your juices flowing and of course, I revisit his, you know, comedy specials that were on cable television. He was one of the first and longest to uh, continue in that forum. Amazing stuff. And of course, his, his recorded albums, which I used to sneak into my bedroom. You know, I'd buy the latest Rolling Stones album, maybe, uh, maybe the latest Kiss. And in between in that bag was George Carlin's Occupation Fool or Class Clown, Toledo Window Box talk about opening up a teenager's head george carlin was a big influence on my creative life and career absorbing his work taught me a lot it's not just what you say but how you say it i mean george had a great rhythm to his delivery how you say it you know george carlin's love for words and language as well as you know the quirkiness of how we communicate he had a real keen ear for that and he taught me to listen and observe both how people act and what they say. He honed my professional radar for spotting hypocrisy. And he forced us in his work, especially towards the end, to face the ugliness of that hypocrisy in both society and personally. And as a performer, I mean, you know, you could watch George and just learn confidence and the ownership of authorship that George championed so greatly. Well, I never did get to meet him in chat. I would have loved that. And as I look at the wild ride that we're currently on in our society and world, I 
long for Carlin's take on the madness. I did, however, have the opportunity to chat with his lovely daughter, Kelly. Kelly is the daughter of George Carlin. There's a great new book. It's called George Carlin's Last Words, and it's out now. Now, it's not like brain droppings and uh, when will Jesus bring the pork chops. This is actually like an autobiography. It's been put together by hours and hours of tapes that Tony Hendra from National Lampoon had uh, collected, and uh, George and he put this book together, and it was intended, I guess, to be published, you know, and, and George left us last year. Too soon we have his daughter, Kelly, with us. Hello, Kelly. Hello. Great to have you on with us. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I spent the weekend uh, reading this book, and uh, let me just give you my real quick uh, growing up with George Carlin. Every time I hear George Carlin, every time I see George Carlin, I'm reminded of my late mother because she just loved this guy, and she introduced me him to him at a young age watching him on the Carson show. And then subsequently, you know, I snuck class clown into my bedroom, listen to that. You know, this is, it was, George Carlin was a rite of passage for a lot of people. Absolutely. And I, and I get so much from people how it's a, it is this cross-generational thing that moms will introduce you or, or dads will take you down in the basement and play the album and tell you not to tell your mom. Right, and right. It's just, it's a really cool thing when I hear about that. It's a great book for anybody who wants to kind of see how hard it is to continue to reinvent yourself because uh, we all know George Carlin is a funny guy, but behind the scenes there was a lot of mistakes, a lot of missteps, both in his private and his professional life. He continued. I was always really impressed with your father's ability to address adversities in his life and and press on. Uh, Absolutely, and and I think that is one of the greatest things about this book is you really do see... um, you know, because when we look at someone up, you know, on a stage or in the movies or whatever, it looks like this seamless career. It looks like this great, you know, easy ride. And uh, and he did. He was, you know, he's like the rest of us. You know, he had a he had a real human bumpy ride. And uh, and it, yeah, this this book is um, unflinchingly honest. Mm-hmm. He really lets it um, lets it all show and talks all about it and and really comes to terms with uh, what it meant in his own life, you know, the drugs and, and you know, and the money issues and, you know, and his, his own struggle with his career and, and what he wanted to do. And uh, it, you know, it's, I, I, I've, I even found it fascinating. And, and I know the guy. Right. At a very young age, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's just what your dad does. So you, I guess you don't really know that it's not normal in some ways. I remember being very young and watching him on television and getting to stay up late one night. I think he was like on Della Reese show or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like an exciting thing to see daddy on TV. Um, but it, it wasn't, you know, it didn't like click or anything. But I know when I was older, and we would go around, especially when he, he his changes happened and he was doing a lot of colleges in the early 70s. Uh, he was like a god, you know, during those times. And so it was really interesting during the summer we would all travel together and to kind of watch how people treated him. And I think that's when I started getting, oh, he he's kind of special and does something kind of interesting, not like the other daddies do. Right. And, and, and you talk about the evolution of a career. In, in the book, Last Words, you'll see George Carlin go from the character-driven kind of uh, 
stand-up, uh, Catskills almost uh, style to the hippie style to the angrier, uh, edgier uh, latter days. And it's really it's really a fascinating read. Uh, you had the unenviable position, and we're, we talked about how unflinging the book is, of being a very young child who worked to get her parents off of uh, alcohol and drug addiction. Yeah, yeah. It was... Uh you know, it was a crazy time back then because no one really knew what was going on with all this, you know, freedom and drugs and alcohol. I mean, you know, the culture was kind of thrown into it and as the people were. And uh, and I think we were a pretty typical, um, you know, uh, family that was wrestling with these kind of things. And, and being an only child and at times the only sane person in the house it seemed like the same thing to do was, you know, well, if this makes you guys crazy, then why don't you stop doing it? <laughs> Kids often have a way of, you know, keeping things in perspective. Yeah, you know, perfectly logical to me. But of course, I wasn't wrapped up in the middle of the, you know, the chemical experiments, I like to call it, you oh, know. Okay. Yeah, you know, and, and so it, it was a tough time because, you know, you want your parents to be your parents. And instead, my parents were acting like crazy teenagers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, now there's a great story in the book also. I want to I go through the book a little bit with people. I really can't recommend this enough. Last words, George Carlin. We're talking with his daughter, Kelly. Now, you, when you first read this book, I mean, Tony Hendra had compiled these tapes. Is that what I'm led to believe here? Yes, absolutely. And he had actually worked on the book with my father over 15 years, compiling the tapes, writing the stuff out, shaping you know, shaping the different chunks, and um, and my dad had seen a lot of it. So there had to be a bunch of surprises for you, like you touched upon earlier. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, although I knew most of the highlighted kind of bigger iconic stories from his childhood, um, the, the opening chapter with his dad and, and his feelings around his dad, that, that was probably immediately the most touching thing to me. Because it really showed my dad's big sentimental heart. And then all the Air Force stuff, I knew nothing about, so that was really fun to learn about, and and some of the Jack Burns stuff, and mm-hmm. and you know just just little stuff, and of course the stuff that he was struggling with internally, um, you know, during many of the times where he knew it was time to evolve again and to move forward as an artist. And I'm a writer and a performer myself, and so for me it was like, oh wow, yeah, you know, whenever you read someone else's journey, it always helps uh-huh. your own journey. Um, so, so there, there are a lot of little things in there that are that are surprising, and some were harder to to read and more difficult and uh, more poignant for me, certainly. And your dad obviously uh, had incredibly insightful and hilarious observations in human nature. As I read the book, I mean, I laughed a lot. Uh, I got angry a few times, you know. Uh, I cheered his bluntness and his honesty. The second to last chapter, it's called "Being, Doing, Getting." Because mm-hmm. it kind of stands on its own in the book. Yes. And yes. I was stunned and I had to reread it immediately because his philosophy and view of uh, our role in the universe is so poetic yeah. and so poignant. And it just, it, I was stunned. I mean, I was like choked up. I had to read it again. It was that good. That it should be required reading for everybody. That, that chapter alone, whether or not you're a Carlin fan or not, every school should have being, doing, getting posted up somewhere. <laughs> Great stuff. I, I agree, and and for me personally, that chapter holds a section there where he talks about the difficulty of what he chose to do for a living and how it exacted a toll on his life, and mm-hmm. um, 
and there's a section there that was very touching for me because it was almost like a conversation my dad and I had had kind of over the years about that, you know, and it was basically about time and being able to spend time with him. And uh, there was like almost a feeling of like a mea culpa in there. And it was it was very touching for me because I felt like I finally got to have the, the big conversation with him. Yeah. We all hope to have that with our loved ones. Yep. In life. It's really had a great impact and uh, and been talking to lots of people about it and and fans have found me on Facebook and I've uh, created a little group on Facebook and it's it's just it's a it's a phenomenal thing and people who are George Carlin fans are usually rabid George Carlin mm-hmm. fans and and so this book uh before it came out I was so excited because I knew it was going to be such a treasure for them uh, because it is the man behind the curtain. <laughs> right. I had read his previous three, mm-hmm. Name Palm and, and Silly Putty and Brain Droppings, and, and they were humorous and they were great, and, and and it was always great to get new Carlin stuff, but then when I found out it was going to be an, a, a, an autobiography, I was really, really excited, and, and I have to say that the book really came through for me. Can I ask a personal question? Of course. What was George's memorial service like? It was uh, it was smallish, as small as we could keep it. Um, and I created uh, uh, a, a group of people that uh, personal and professional people who I thought needed to be there. Um, I was the I was the MC, and uh, one of the first things I did was I went up there and I. I did a little Carlin-esque uh, thing about how, the words and things we will not be saying today, which is, my father did not pass away, and we did not lose him, <laughs> you know, right, so I, right. I did some of that. <laughs> so there was a lot of laughter, and we showed some videos, and, and there was a lot of tears, and, uh, you know, it was one of those events where you um, kind of just throw things together, and it just it, it stuck together beautifully. George's humor, you know, especially in the last decade or so of his career, evolved, like we talked about, it's kind of an angrier, uh, edgier, shouting at the world, uh, humanitarian. And he stated in the book that seeing Sam Kinison mm-hmm. do his thing kind of planted that seed, kind of set him upon that change to go down the path where, you know, you really get raw and just, you know, uh, kind of like their primal scream therapy of uh, humor. Do you remember any other comics that uh, that George enjoyed that you can recall? Um, he liked lots of guys, you know, and um, and the thing is, is like I wasn't always around him when he was discovering these new guys or watching them. But but I know he would, you know, he would pick up the phone a lot if he'd see some guy on on a TV on Comedy Central or one of the you know Letterman or Leno. Um, but you know, I certainly know that that uh, Lewis Black was someone that he he picked up the phone to and you know really said he really enjoyed his work and um he certainly respected Bill Maher mm-hmm. and uh, and then there were lots of other people I mean you know Bill Hicks of course um and uh guys like that but uh, I don't know in particular his his list because he know? comes across as a fan as well and I think that Absolutely. that I really was I really enjoyed that part of him that he you know not not only was he the elder statesperson of uh of his generation mm-hmm. but uh he he was still a fan of great comedy and I, and I think that comes across in the book as he mentions people and I wanted to touch upon that and there's also uh there's a great story in the book where he goes to the uh 
an award ceremony uh, that he attends with Lauren Michaels, Chevy Chase, Dennis Miller, <laughs> Martin Short, and Steve Martin. And he's, he talks about the shallowness of these celebrity things, you know, these get-togethers, and he attempts to make some sort of human contact with these, uh, you know, big names, and, and he's one of them. And, yes. and I'm guessing maybe a lot of his friends weren't celebrities, that he, he hung out with regular guys. I'm, you know, he did, and he didn't actually have a lot of friends. He was very much a loner absolutely a loner. I mean, he talks about it in the book and, uh, he, you know, he did his work and he had, uh, you know, when my mom was alive, he had my mom and he, or he had Sally afterwards. And, you know, it it was just a very small life. He was on the road a lot, but he, you know, he, he was still in contact with all of his friends from the old neighborhood. And, you know, in some ways I think he was really close with them. He was very close with his brother and yeah. certainly Jerry Hamza, but he didn't hang out with, uh, he never hung out with Hollywood people. I mean, there was never a luncheon or a thing or parties or none of that stuff. He just didn't do it. And my dad used to talk about, you know, when you'd work on a bit or work on something and you'd get excited about it and couldn't wait until the audience could hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can totally relate to that. And I think of my dad often these days when I'm, I'm doing my work. So, uh, so yeah, it's it's slightly different art form than my dad. Um, my dad didn't want me to do stand up at a pretty young age. He said to me, "I forbid you from doing stand up," <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's not because uh, I, I'm not funny, because that I certainly am. But uh, but that's because it's such a tough, tough life. Right. And uh, and that very thing he talked about in the book, you know, being on the road a lot, and that's the kind of life you have to have as mm-hmm. a stand up. And those rooms, uh, you know, it's it's difficult. And he didn't want that for me. He wanted something more stable and and uh, different for me. And and so I always thought that was very sweet of him to want to protect me from the comedian's life. Yeah, but the expression, the love of uh, expression and, and language, that's in your genes. You can't escape that. No, you can't. My dad used to say an old Irish saying, which is, you know, you don't lick it off the rocks, kid. And uh, and it's true. It, it, it's it just, there. Yeah. It, yeah, it's just part of who you are. And, uh, uh, you know, it's it's I can't help myself but want to express myself uh, by either speaking or writing my words. Yes. Excellent. And it was kind of a difficulty for me because, you know, I did try to have normal jobs. Really did try really hard. And, uh, you know, and I would find myself in production work, which was, you know, not too normal, but still at times normal thinking, you know, "Ah, I'm dying here. So it's no matter what, it's an artist's life and it's a tough life. I'm also a life coach and a creative consultant. So I do kind of have a little bit of stability in that way. You've got a lot lot of uh, life experience to bring to that. I do. I do. Absolutely. And, and it's kind of the role I played from day one in my family anyway. You know, right. it's like, let's, let's see, you know, let's, you know, cr- you know, let's contain the crisis here or, you know, <laughs> let's find the road to happiness and peace again, people. <laughs> well, I think in, in many of the interviews that are included in, uh, in, in uh, last words, it's, it's really a Valentine to you and your mother in many, mm-hmm. in many times over, you know, he, He's yeah. very, very blunt, and he's very open, and he's very forward, but he, beneath all that, a big I love yous. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and and it's really sweet because, you know, people, especially the last 10 years, you know, saw the kind of what you say, the angrier, edgier George Carlin. But that man had the biggest sentimental heart. He mm-hmm. really did. He was just a mush ball inside. And, uh, and I love when that comes out in the book, that, you know, you really see his poignant sentimentality. 
Uh, your dad made so many people laugh, and he's such a part of all our lives. It's really a pleasure speaking with you. I do appreciate you being part of our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Can you leave us with a lesson that maybe George gave to you that you carry with you? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's really believe in yourself and don't be afraid to express yourself. For him, freedom of expression was so essential. And, and even if it was something he disagreed with that I wanted to express, which, you know, so in some of my stories I talk about our earlier life, uh, he always said to me, you know, you're an artist and I would never ask you to change a word of it. So, you know, just really respecting that if you have an urge to create something, respect that urge. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Wavy Gravy, the clown prince of the counterculture. Born 85 years ago, Hugh Nanton Romney Jr. was a volunteer for the U.S. Army and was a performing poet during the late 50s. He's, of course, best known as the stage announcer declaring breakfast for 400,000 at Woodstock. A real psychedelic throwback to a time that lives immortal in the pantheon of pop culture. Here he is now to walk us through his colorful life, Wavy Gravy. Please welcome to the program, Wavy Gravy. You got gravy in your ear, perhaps a Q-tip. Wavy Gravy, activist, clown, former frozen dessert, temple of accumulated error, flower geezer, hippie icon, at your service. <laughs> Does that fit on a business card? Uh, if you write real small. <laughs> former frozen dessert. And you know, the uh, Ben & Jerry Wavy Gravy, one of my favorite flavors, and that went a long way to helping a lot of people out, didn't it? from uh, Ben and Jerry and I was uh, a flavor for eight years uh, went to send uh, uh, economically challenged uh, children to uh, my circus and performing arts camp called Camp Win a Rainbow where I do uh, nine weeks for kids this is our 33rd year and I also do nine days for grown-ups we're mm. too late to have a happy childhood I'm telling you that sounds like a vacation plan doesn't it well, just check us out at campwinnerrainbow.org. Right. Well, we're talking a wavy gravy. A lot of us <laughs> remember that you uh, you gave us breakfast in bed for 400000 at Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, but mine is breakfast in bed for 400000 <laughs> That is when we introduced hippies to granola. <laughs> right. They had right. never seen granola before, <laughs> and we cooked it up and put it in Dixie Cups and walked it out onto the uh, the great field and uh, uh, presented it to hippies in sleeping bags, and they looked at it and says, what's that gravel? <laughs> <laughs> they would have eaten it anyway, right? They ate it anyway. Right. They liked it. And, uh, you know, I got my name from B.B. Uh, King in the fall of 69. What led him to give you the moniker Wavy Gravy? It's it, Well, let's see. Uh, it was... Uh, just after Woodstock, we were asked to go to Texas to do this big uh, uh, rock festival. They were having a rodeo at the same time, and there was a certain amount of friction between the rodeo and the rock. And uh, we rolled in and uh, uh, proceeded to uh, recruit the uh, uh, rodeo clowns and uh, went back to the uh, Lake Dallas, where the camping was being held, and uh, uh, took over from the police. We were the police. <laughs> All the cowboys moved in and uh, uh, st uh, set up their house on the roofs of their cars. It looked like a drive-in on the moon. We set up a free stage, and I'm, you know, laying on the floor babbling, and this announcement comes over our PA, uh, B.B. King.
bus. He's going to play for free. And I started to to get up uh, slowly. It was before one of my surgeries. I felt this hand on my shoulder. Right. I looked up, and there was B.B. King. He looked down, and he just said, You wavy gravy. I said, Yes, sir. He said, <laughs> Well, wavy gravy, I can work around you. And he took me, and he leaned me up against his amplifier took out his guitar named Lucille and from out of the other side of the stage came Johnny Winter and it was black and white and blue and they played till sunrise and it was uh, everybody's reward for uh, uh, putting on their pants uh, yeah I had to get them all to put on their pants because <laughs> the, the Job's daughters had gone crazy about the skinny dip and then they were going to call the National Guard wow every, every day's been an adventure for you hasn't it well Right after that, I returned to uh, California where I had a grant at Cal State teaching improvisation to neurologically handicapped kids. And uh, I told the kids my name was Wavy Gravy for the first time. And after the class, which was filmed and taped through one-way glass, these professors came running in. They said, keep that name. You saved a week's orientation. (laughs) Your, Your compassion for children uh, knows no boundaries, and I was wondering, what was your childhood like? Well, uh, I think my early claim to fame when I was like six, uh, I used to go for uh, uh, walks around the block with uh, Albert Einstein. We lived in Princeton. Mm. My mom had me out in the yard for an airing, <laughs> and uh, I guess I looked a little bit like Winston Churchill. Most babies do. <laughs> And for some reason or other, he just asked my mom if he could walk me around the block, and my mom was, like, blown out. And, I mean, I don't remember. I remember a shock of white hair that uh, predated Don King by half a century. Right. I remember a twinkle in his eyes. I remember a sweatshirt, no logo, sneakers, and a smell. When you're young... You can remember back to your childhood odors. Mm -hmm. And I've never spilled anything like that since. But someday, someday, I'm going to walk up to somebody and say, Hey, man, you smell like Albert Einstein. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're right, though. When When you're a kid... Every aunt's house, every neighbor's house has its own the distinct odor, and you can. Uh-huh. So, so what, what did it smell like? Can you liken it to anything? The smell I of Albert Einstein. It's like trying to tell somebody what pork chops smell like. It's well, not so easy, right? Hey, that is the that's a great name for a band too. If anybody's out there listening, the smell what, of the Albert smell Einstein. Of pork chops. The, the smell of Einstein. Einstein. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. Or the smell of pork chops. I tried to teach my son his first words to be E equals M C squared. He, <laughs> he got the E down pretty good. Right. Right. That was it. That'll so, do. Well, Wavy Gravy has been keeping this dream alive for uh, through the decades that probably have made a lot of people just give up on their idealism that was born in the 60s. So what keeps you going? We can never give up. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, especially uh, my work with SEVA, and you can uh, find out about the SEVA Foundation by going seva.org. Right. Uh when we first started, it, 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 see, 80% of the people in the world that are blind don't need to be. That's uh, that's frightening. Mm. Uh, uh, 80% of them can get their sight back. It, it costs now probably about $30 for a cataract operation 
in an eye camp in the third world. About 30 bucks, the price of a, a, a movie with a couple friends, you could cause somebody to see again. I mean, that was a eye-opening experience for me, nudge, nudge, every pun intended. Right. What is your take on the, on the situation with health care right now in America? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, you know what, what a Canadian actor does when they break a leg on a New York stage, where do they go? They go to the airport. Right. They fly to Canada where they have uh, health care. You know, it's ridiculous. The country of our our wealth and, and wherewithal that we don't have uh, health care for everybody. Well, I encourage everyone to go to seva.org. It's S-E-V-A.org. And it's a it's a beautiful web page, and it's, it's very well put together, and it definitely uh, points people in the right direction. And we also work uh, with uh, the uh, Mayans in uh Chiapas in the refugee camps and in in the highlands of Guatemala with the widows of the disappeared ones. We do agriculture projects and uh, sanitation projects and uh, community building work. And in with the uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, the indigenous population of the United States, we're beginning to take on diabetes, which is almost epidemic on the American Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. And we're doing this uh, with garden projects, with talking circles of elders, and bringing back the buffalo. And believe it or not, on the Winnebago Reservation, they've actually named a stud buffalo after me, Wavy Gravy. Nice. And uh, there's another stud buffalo named Mike Bison, who I understand beats me up from time to time. <laughs> now, does Mike Tyson know that there's a buffalo named after him? I don't know. You have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't run into him lately, have you? No. We're talking a wavy gravy, and it is, it's is—it's really an honor to have you on, man. I just look at all the counterculture progress that's made, and somewhere in the back of every photograph, or oftentimes in the front, there's wavy gravy doing his part. I'm with the under-the-counter culture. I'm going to name some people that you've been associated with, and I just want to get, get a quick take. Uh, Lenny Bruce called you the perfect entertainer. Whoa. Well, Lenny was a skyrocket, and uh, he paved the way for people like... Uh, like Robin Williams and Eddie Murphy, <laughs> Lenny Lenny did jail time for all those guys for saying those naughty words, and he wasn't saying them uh, uh, for for shock value, but uh, to try and uh, uh, reform the language. He, Lenny had a great respect for the law, but uh, the law done did him in. He fought the law, and the law won. And yeah, uh, did. I really recommend that. You know, at least you you take a look at the film with Dustin Hoffman, and there's a lot of new stuff uh, about Lenny that's just come out. New album, uh, I think, is it Rhino? I'm not sure the company has put out a a huge uh, Lenny Bruce retrospective. He was one of the great uh, stand-up comedians of all time. Yeah, and a great monologist. He a great story. And he was my manager. I remember uh, <laughs> when Kennedy was assassinated. I was in the L.A. Law Library, uh, uh, photostatting definitions for uh, thuts and putts. I think for <laughs> for a, uh, <laughs> a, a a court brief for for Lenny. He got to his house, and uh, he had made this most incredible radio collage. He he had a broken leg. He was in bed. And he got his little tape recorder, and as the, the the horror of the Kennedy assassination came in, he created this sound collage that he played for me that just uh, just took whatever breath I had left away, let me tell you. He was a genius. 
And uh, you also you opened for John Coltrane on some of your uh, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, mostly. Uh, uh, I even did a, 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 a several uh, stops with Thelonious Monk, who was one of my great heroes, like uh, having a, a little yellow basketball bounced inside your head heading towards eternity. He was uh, he was an amazing dude. His middle name is Sphere. And how about Bob Dylan, your roommate at one time? Well, yeah, I remember when Dylan first came into the Gaslight for, uh, uh, we were doing this hoot nanny, and he come up, I'm running the, the stage, and he comes up to me and says, hey, man, can I go on? And I don't know what possessed me. I just grabbed the microphone and said, here he is, a legend this lifetime. What's your name, kid? <laughs> Look so at that. I was the first one to project that. We ended up sharing a room up over the gaslight. That's true. And uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall was written on my typewriter. Isn't that something? Uh, Bruce Springsteen said to me, you still got that typewriter? I said, well, it was eaten by a Beacons. That's a, along with Lenny Bruce's couch. There was a little fire and a lot of my stuff got burned up. I would love to visit your home. I bet you still got a lot of cool stuff. Oh, I'm buried in stuff. <laughs> buried in stuff. Stuff comes, stuff goes. This is the way of stuff. Well, Wavy Gravy, a pleasure, man. I know you're very busy. I wanted to ask you the recent passing of the great Hunter S. Thompson. Well, he certainly went out with a bang. And now, <laughs> Fats Waller says, shoot me when I'm happy. But he, I don't think he wanted to do it himself. <laughs> right, right. However... Uh, Hunter wants his ashes to be blasted out of the cannon, and so <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> My epitaph is happy birthday. Death is Patrick Henry's second choice. There you That's go. That's a quote from Del Close, who was one of the great uh, improvisers, Chicago yeah. improvisers, a roommate of mine, and one of my great heroes. He used to roller skate from his apartment through the Chicago sewer system uh -huh. with a with a flashlight taped to his head and a BB gun to repel rats. Yeah, he was uh, one of a kind, as are you. And Del Close taught me so much about the magic of every moment and, and the creativity that you can find in it. He was a great guy, and he actually held his funeral a week before he died. Yeah. With chocolate martinis for everyone. Yeah, I, I had a phoner on that one. Yeah, he was great. It was great having you with us, Wavy Gravy. Best to you, my friend. Nice to be had. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year and peace and love from your friends here at the Mike Tomano Happening. See you next year. Happy New Year.